Thank you. Well, good morning, church. Such a privilege to be with you guys today. And, and uh, Tony, so, so blessed that you just have me out and share. And I just loved your introduction. Just, you know, such a great pastoral. I mean, one is introduction to our ministry, but just your heart uh, for partnering with us and a lot of other work that God is doing around the world. And, and what a privilege for me this morning to encourage, I pray, some of you and exhort some of you. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn me to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, I will be sharing from the Word this morning, as well as, uh, for some of you, kind of giving you a, a familiarization with our ministry, giving some updates from uh, the fields. I'm going to end the message sharing specifically about Afghanistan and Ukraine. Um, just by way of hands, how many of you are familiar with far-reaching ministries? Okay, oh, so quite a few of you. So looks like the majority of you are, are not, but so I want to share a little bit of some good news uh, that God is doing around the world in the midst of a lot of bad news. And, and I share that for a couple of reasons. One, because my prayer this morning is that it would not only be a general encouragement, but I also pray for some of you today, um, God has a word for you. Because the God that we serve, I, I serve in the ministries, the God of the mountains. There's some incredible mountaintop experiences, but oftentimes we serve, we're in the valleys. And the same God that is on the mountains is the God of the valleys. And some of you are in a valley this morning. Some of you are in a valley season. And I want to encourage you this morning that the God that we serve is present. He's active. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. Um, he's got this thing, everything under control. And you need to hear that this morning. And Romans 8, 28 is still true. It's always been true. It will always be true that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Amen. Now, I want to say to you, not everything is good. In fact, I serve in a ministry where we are surrounded by things that are, frankly, the opposite of good. They're, they're, they're wicked, they're evil, they're broken. And yet the God that we serve is able to make and to turn all things out for good. And I can say with every ounce of my own life, my own testimony, every fiber in my being, it is true. And God is faithful. And he's a God who can bring beauty out of ashes. And, and, and I'm already preaching this morning, getting excited to share that with some of you. But uh, Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to be in a moment, and I also want to say as I, I was turning there, as you're getting ready, um, it was such a blessing this morning, Pastor Tony, just to be a part of prayer. You know, I was reading something recently, I was actually rereading the book uh, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire by Jim Simbla, awesome book on uh, what God did in the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, but there was a quote in there, but basically something along the lines of, you know how popular Jesus is by who shows up to the prayer meeting, and uh, it was so great to be in a prayer meeting that was full of life. It wasn't like one prayer, five minutes later, another prayer, and then a lot of pause and silence and ums. It was just everybody just, it was full of life and crying out and praying and believing, and it was just, it was awesome. And uh, to be a part of a church, uh, I was saying this to Ed before, you know, we get to visit a lot of different churches, and it's interesting when you visit a lot of churches, there, there are different life cycles of churches. And some churches that you visit, they're maybe on the tail end of a life cycle, it seems like. For whatever reason, it's like, okay, maybe the better days were behind it. This truly feels like a church that is full of life. It's multi-generational. It's, it's, the best days are in front of you. I, can just, I just say that as an outside observer coming in and just feeling the Spirit of God to encourage you. God's here, and there's a good work that he is doing and going to continue to do. Well, Philippians chapter 2, pick up with me in verse 1. Very familiar passage of scripture. I'm reading this morning. I brought my uh, ESV, uh, just so you know as I, as I read, as you follow along. Paul writes this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I know Pastor Tony just prayed, but if you wouldn't mind, I wanna pray one more time. Father, again, I thank you so much for your spirit here. I thank you for worship, God, your presence. I do pray this morning, God, um, that you would speak a word of exhortation and a word of encouragement. That, Lord, you would be the one um, that is exalted. You would be the one that our eyes and our hearts are fixed on. And I pray that every single one of us, Lord, we would truly leave here different than the way that we came in. We would be changed, that we would spend a moment with you. And what I do know, Lord, is one moment in your presence can change everything. And so, Lord, we do desperately need your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, you know, my, my desire this morning is to bring in a word of encouragement, but also a word of exhortation. Some of you do need that encouragement. You do need to be met by the one who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. And some of you need a good kick in the pants. <laughs> I don't know about you, but sometimes I need that. And I think about the times in my life and the people and the men in my life who at different times spoke a word of truth and a word of exhortation, and I needed that, and it changed my life. And I think about those times when I heard the still small voice of the Spirit saying, come aside to still waters, come aside and sit with me. And so I pray this morning as I share some stories with you of what God is doing in the midst of a lot of really horrific news around the world, there are good things that God is doing. He is active. He is at work. God does have a purpose. He does have a plan for your life. The Bible says that God has a life for us. It's a life and it's a good life. It calls it the uh, abundant life. Jesus says, I came to give you life and life more abundantly. And the sad thing is I, I, I see more and more, so few people actually seem to experience the abundant life, at least on a consistent basis. They might experience in bits and pieces here in spades, but for Far too many people that I know in America, far too many Christians, they, they feel to ongoingly experience that abundant life. And I'm convinced it's because so many people think the abundant life is the American dream. That somehow the American dream has been somehow associated with the abundant life that God offers to us. And I want to tell you, it's not. Now, the, the father we serve and love is a good dad who loves to give good gifts to his kids. The father of life who, who is no shadow of turning, the book of James says. He gives good things. And yet so many times we have bought into the lie that unless I have enough in my 401k, unless I have a second home on the vacation spot here, then I'm not experiencing that abundant life. And I want to say that's a total lie. And I can say that because I, I get the privilege of meeting countless men and women who have nothing that remotely looks like what we would call the American dream. 
no social security, no healthcare system, no nothing, and they have a life that I'm envious of. And I get to travel to Latin America or Africa, and I minister and, and, and minister to people, and oftentimes I'm ministered you know, by them. You know, They speak life to me. They have come from some of the most tragic situations, broken homes, devastated physically, emotionally, like you can't even imagine, and yet there's a joy because they know Jesus, because the Jesus that we read about in Scripture is true in their life. Again, they have nothing that looks like the, the American dream, but they have that abundant life. The Bible also calls this life the, the resurrected life. And the reality is the resurrected life, just, just by me stating that, indicates that if there's a resurrection, there has to be a death. <laughs> you know? And the life that the Lord has for us so oftentimes is found on the other side of death, picking up our cross and following him, denying self. Here in Philippians 2, this exhortation to have a different mindset a different way of thinking, a different way of living than the world has. It's a way of thinking not just for yourself. It says, don't only think about yourself. It's okay to think about yourself, but think about others. And then we'll get into the text this morning. The same exact mindset that Jesus had. Let this mindset, let this life. Well, what was this life? We'll see this life ultimately led Jesus to the cross, but on the other side of that was resurrected life, a glorious life, and we'll talk about that. So again, this morning, I want to give you a little introduction about far-reaching ministries, who we are, how we got started, what we are doing in the world. I want to give an exhortation from the text and then end with um, some good news about Ukraine and Afghanistan, what God is doing. Far-reaching ministries began almost three decades ago now, um, and it really began by accident. Our founder, Wes Bentley, was a part of a different missions organization at the time. And he had a heart for Russia. That's where he wanted to be. He loved Russia. He had been a, a former military man who had gotten radically saved and got healed, delivered, and changed his heart, and he was serving the Lord, and he felt called to Russia. And while he was there and working with a different missions organization, he was invited, because of his personal background, to travel to South Sudan because they were pioneering a new work. And if you know anything about the country of South Sudan, it's a new country, actually, that formed after decades-long civil war in the country of Sudan. And so for years, really, genocide had been committed from the northern part, primarily Arabic and Islamic in its ideology, persecuting and violently murdering millions of their own people just because they simply did not believe in the same faith that they held to because they were Christian or animist. And so this long, decades-long civil war was transpiring, really fighting for freedom, fighting for a place just like many of us would want to raise their families, to live in peace, to practice their faith. And so Wes was invited to come and do a bit of reconnaissance that was supposed to be a three-week mission. But while he was there, God opened up doors, and because of his background, ended up being introduced to different people, and eventually a, a particular general who was way up. Well, this general had been fighting for years, and in the pursuit of bringing victory to his country, bringing peace to his country, his own family had been horribly butchered. His wife, his kids had all been utterly decimated and destroyed his extended family, and, and he grew hardened. And in his response to that, he ended up doing things in, the, in what was a, a good fight that, that brought him shame, and he couldn't sleep. And he couldn't shake this feeling, this guilt, this shame, the nightmares at night. And, and West began to share with him and got an audience with this general, and the general began to open up. There was something in West that he felt like he could talk to him about. And Wes began to share the gospel with them and began to share that there is forgiveness, there is healing. And he shared the testimony of the Apostle Paul because the general thought, there's no way that I could be forgiven. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the, the, the murders that I've committed in the, you know, the name of trying to free my people. 
And so Wes shared with him, and he shared about the Apostle Paul. Wes shared about his own story and his own testimony about how he once was a violent man who, who lied his way at 17 to get into the Marines when he shouldn't have been because he just wanted to go fight because he was an angry person, and God healed and delivered him. And he was able to lead this general to the Lord. This general received Jesus as a savior, and there was something powerful that happened. He was delivered in that moment, and he said, my men need what you have. Will you come back and teach my men? Because he knew his men were living with the same guilt that he was living with. And their cause for freedom and justice because of their own personal pain, they had done some things that they were not proud of. And so Wes was invited back, and after prayer, he said, okay, Lord, I will do this. And what began 27 years ago was a ministry to raise up chaplains in the southern Sudanese army. And I love his heart because Wes had a heart for Russia, and he still does, and I'll talk a little bit about that. We still have a lot of ongoing work in Russia. But if you think about it, a hot day in Russia is about 72 degrees. <laughs> a cold day in South Sudan is about 95, you know? It's like, that's, and so completely different places. I want to be in Russia, and God's saying, yeah, but you need to be in South Sudan. But Lord, this is where my heart is, but this is where I want you to be. And he says, okay, Lord. And one of the things that Wes tells us a lot, and I've seen in my own life personally, is a couple things. Number one, obedience always brings a blessing. And and obedience is always the safety net of the believer. When we choose obedience, when we choose the will of God, and you'll hear a story a bit uh, from a video of one of our workers in Syria about the safest place to be, no matter how violent and everything else is around, is the safest place to be is in the, in the center of will, the will of God, choosing obedience. And Wes said, yes, Lord. And so 27 years ago, we began a ministry of raising chaplains. Over 600 chaplains have been raised. And just to briefly to share a little bit about these men, because for me, they're some of the greatest men I've ever met in my life. When you read about David's mighty men, it's like, oh, yeah, I've met David's mighty men, at least modern day guys. Uh, I love our modern military, the chaplains that serve in the U.S. military. They provide spiritual care. Well, well, in South Sudan, they provide spiritual care, but they don't have the luxury of only providing spiritual care. They have to actually be trained to fight as well. So if you ever read the book of Nehemiah where it says they, have a, they had a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, well, our chaplains have a Bible in one hand and an AK in the other. You know, it's, they, they, have to, they know they, their, their duty is to fight to protect the innocent. Their, their duty is to bring and establish peace, to be an instrument, like the Bible says in the book of Romans, to bring peace on the land, God's instrument. But beyond that, their greatest heart's desire is to bring the word of God. They know lasting peace will only come as they preach and plant churches. And so the chaplains get trained under our ministry a year in the word of God. We bring different pastors out and Calvary Chapel guys, and they teach them from Genesis to Revelation. But one of the things that we realized early on was that as they're getting taught the word of God, it, because of where they live, because of how and who they minister to, they're dealing with people whose lives have been absolutely devastated. Women who have been left as widows, women who have been raped, kids who have been left as orphans, kids who have been left without parents and experienced some of the most horrible atrocities that our minds, can, it's hard to wrap around. And so our chaplains need to be trained not only how to teach the word of God, but how to apply it. And so they get taught the word of God, but they also get three months of women's ministry training, which sounds interesting, and three months of children's ministry as well. And it's incredible. I've been over there several times. And I, in fact, I was just there a few weeks ago meeting with the guys. And I've been on outreach with some of the guys. One guy named Lino who's got literally bullet wounds and shrapnel marks all over his body. And Lino has one of the biggest smiles you could ever meet. But you also know that Lino's a bad dude. And if need be, <laughs> he'll hurt you. you know? <laughs> and in fact, he almost died defending our compound when it was in, in Kampala when it was ambushed one time and fought them off and protected it. But I've also played Red Rover, Red Rover with Lino, dealing with kids on a VBS outreach. It just, I, I share the, the kind of, you know, when I say David's mighty men, men that know how to fight, but also men who know how to love God. 
and to love people. I think of one guy in particular, Paul Quo, I got the chance to meet many years ago. And I was at a, 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 a chaplain's refresher course. We'd come and bring them off the field to restock them, replenish them, and do a, a week-long Bible conference. And Paul had made his way off the field, and he had walked a couple of weeks from where he had been stationed. And day three of the conference, um, I realized, you know, we went to go pray for Paul. And when I put my hand on his back, something wasn't right. Now, this whole time, Paul had been worshiping. Paul had been, you know, taking copious notes. Paul was smiling. Paul was a dink. He was about six foot four, black as midnight, and the whitest teeth you could ever imagine. And shake your hand, the biggest, biggest smile you'd ever meet in your life. And I remember when to put my hand on Paul's back to pray for him, and he was on fire. And when I say on fire, I wasn't spiritually like that guy was on fire. No, like physically, I've never felt anybody with a fever like this in my life. And I asked one of his friends, I said, what's going on with Paul? Because I asked Paul, he's like, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And his buddy's like, well, he's actually got malaria and typhoid, and he goes to the clinic every morning before he comes to, to the worship service. And I couldn't believe it. In that moment, I thought a couple of things. Number one, I thought, man, I am such a wuss. <laughs> you know, whatever I complain about, I, it's just that. I'm complaining about the, just the, the goofiest things. And I was just so overwhelmed in, in you know, the type of commitment and the joy that he had, in, in spite of what he was enduring, in the spite of the pain, to be in the presence of the Lord and be with his brothers, like, he wasn't going to miss it. Few a few weeks back when I was in Sudan at the chaplain's, at chaplain refresher conference, I learned from, from Wes that Paul went to be with the Lord a few months prior. I didn't know he was sick. And, and the reason being was because he had continued to serve on the front lines and his body eventually just gave out. He had had so many bouts of typhoid, malaria, and just because he was always in the front lines, always some of the worst conditions. And, and when Paul was on his deathbed, Wes was able to talk to him and, and, and Paul said, don't, don't cry for me, I know where I'm going. He, he knew and had counted the cost, and he could not wait to see Jesus and the legacy that he left behind, you know, the, the, the churches that had been planted and the lives that had been touched. And, and really, Paul represents, like so many of the chaplains, I could tell countless stories of these guys, but they're, they're the guys that are willing to run into places that others are running out of. And they've come to define who we are as a ministry. Every ministry is a bit unique, and, and God has positioned us because of our background, because of just our willingness to say yes, that we are in places that most people in the world are running out of, and that's where God positions us. And as I mentioned, obedience always brings a blessing. It was that obedience to say yes to raise these chaplains, to run into these places that God opened up other doors for us as a ministry. And so what began 27 years ago, simply training chaplains, I shouldn't say simply, but that there has expanded into 37 different countries all over the world in what we call our ghost operations. And you'll hear a video testimony from one of our operatives, one of our underground church workers uh, that we help sponsor and support and work with. In fact, in a few weeks, I'll be flying out to somewhere um, and meeting with a lot of the team members to encourage them. But Ghost Operations now operates in places like Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan. I found out recently we actually have a guy pioneering a work in North Korea. I was like, oh my goodness. I do a lot of work personally. I'm down in Latin America quite a bit, living in San Diego. I drive into Mexico frequently. I was just there last week doing something and, and, and seeing all over the work in the midst of pain and hard places, God working and bringing light. The chaplains, as I mentioned, you know, they, they, they run into these places. And if you ever get the opportunity to be in Southern California, I'd love to host you at our, our, our office headquarters. And, and, and you'll see a video in a minute which kind of just detailing this. But 73 of these men have laid down their life over the last 27 years. They, they counted the cost. You've heard the phrase, um, some gave all and all gave some. 
Well, they gave all in, in service of not just their country, but more than that to the Lord. 73 men who knew they didn't have a death wish, but they did not love their lives even unto death. And they were willing to go to the front lines, willing to fight, willing to put themselves in harm's way to bring the gospel, to preach the gospel, to, to see men and women and young kids who have been traumatized to, to experience healing, to experience the power of the word of God change their life, to believe with everything in them that it's worth it. And so if you ever get the chance, we have what we call our wall of honor in the office. And as of now, there's 69. We've got to add a few more. Just the last few months, we've had a few more lose their lives, but we call her a wall of honor, and it, it's a picture of these men, men that I've prayed with, men that I've worshiped with, uh, and it tells their story and their testimony, and it, it, it's a humbling thing to me uh, to get to represent what they do and who they are to the body of Christ even here in America. My title is Director of Victims of War, and as I mentioned, because of where we're at, we have a lot of different widows and orphans that we end up taking care of because we realize that we preach the gospel and share the word of God. It's not simply enough to give word only, but in demonstration, <laughs> the word in power. And part of that looks like getting down and, and walking alongside people. And so we have schools and orphanages, orphanages for special needs, orphanages for kids that have been abandoned, AIDS victims. Uh, we have school there where we're taking care of some of our chaplains who are serving on the front line. Their kids can go to school and we, we house them. And all these different things, we realize this is our responsibility and privilege to do this. As I mentioned, let me tell a story. I get down to Mexico a lot and where we build houses for women who have been rescued out of the cartel, whose husbands are in the cartel, grandmas who have been rescued and, and some of their, their kids and grandkids. And so I get down there and we get to visit the, the kids and the homes that we're building for them. And one particular story, a boy named Luis stays with me a lot. A few months back, I got to see Luis, after, and it was actually a good story. You see, Luis, about a year and a half ago, came into our ministry because his grandma and younger sisters had already been part of our ministry. We were feeding and taking care of them. But Luis was still with his mom, and I weren't really sure why, but at the time, Luis was seven. He's now, he just turned nine. But when Luis came into our care, Luis had been up at night, and when he heard his mom talking with her mom's boyfriend about selling him to the cartel. Mom's on drugs, boyfriend's on drugs, and he could hear them for more drugs. Basically, they said, we're going to sell, we'll sell Luis to the cartel. Now, at best, that meant Luis was probably going to be at the border somewhere begging for money all day and giving the money back over to the cartel. At some point, he'd be running packages and drugs. At worst, it could be sold into sexual exploitation to be used by people. And he knew all this even at seven years of age. And he had the wherewithal to take off running. He didn't know where, but he tried to find his grandma's house. And Luis runs all night long, and, and truly by a miracle. Because if you've ever been to Ensenada, it's not a small little town. It's a humongous city, and he runs all night. And I believe directed somehow by angels, he finds the house of his grandma. And there comes into the care of his grandma, comes into our ministry, comes into our care. And for months, Luis didn't talk. Just the trauma of what he had experienced, the trauma of living in that condition with his mom and her mom's boyfriend, and then hearing that his own mom was supposed to protect him, was supposed to love him, is willing to sell him for money for drugs. It, it, does, something to, it does something to you. And so we were working with his grandma, working with his sisters, you know, feeding them, making sure they're going to school. We had a local pastor coming in doing Bible studies at the house, but Luis needed some extra care, like sometimes some of the kids that we work with. And so we got Luis drum lessons. And if you ever know anything about like music and therapy and things like that, to kind of work with them, to see like, no, God has a purpose and a plan for his life, and it's so much more than this, you know. And it was so neat. A few months back, we were able to bring Luis and actually 16 kids down to the beach in Ensenada. Now, these kids had actually never been to the ocean. 
I mean, could you imagine? I mean, how far is the ocean from like five minutes? So these, yeah, basically, could you imagine being a kid here and never going to the ocean? Like, you can't even fathom that. And these kids had actually never had a day at the beach just playing in the sand and being near the water. And so we brought these 16 kids that day, and they all had a birthday. I don't know what their birthday was, but they all had presents. We all had a cake. It was amazing. Uh, at some point, one of the guys on the beach came by with ponies, you know, and pony rides. And we're like, great, come on over, paid them in, and put the kids on the ponies and stuff. And it was amazing. I share this story because I saw Luis, and I saw the power of the gospel change his life. And the power of the love of Christ with skin on it, with people who are believers, the body of Christ willing to do something. I saw Luis laugh and smile. And later on in the day when he got his present and he was eating cake, and after they'd eaten, I think all, every kid had like four hot dogs. They like love hot dogs down there. <laughs> and he was talking. And I said to Biktha, who oversees our work down there, I said, Biktha, is that Luis? And she said, yeah. I said, he wasn't talking before, right? I wanted to make sure I had the story straight because I hadn't been down there. He's like, yeah. And she told the story and, and just the healing. And I share that with you because... Because in the midst of darkness, there is light. God's light does penetrate the darkness. The darkness does not extinguish it. I share this because this is personal to me. You see, my own son, my youngest son, who is now almost 19, just graduated high school, we adopted almost 18 years ago from Uganda. When we found out what was going on there, we knew we had to do something about it. And I love my son Isaac. I'm so proud of him. Just graduated. I always felt sorry for whoever had to tackle him in football. He's like 6'2 with muscles on muscles. And, you know, and I always got to work the chain gang on the side for you dads. You know, it was always great. I had to like be quiet because you're not supposed to yell and cheer. But uh, I did anyway. Um, but more than that, he, he loves Jesus. And he's a worshiper. In fact, this last summer, he spent the, the summer in my friend's church in Florida who planted a church. And I share these stories, so this is personal to me to get to work with kids and, and women and children around the world. We know it's personal to the Lord. Pure and undefiled religion is this, is to take care of widows and orphans and their needs. It's near and, near, near and dear to the heart of God. And, and because it's near and dear to the heart of God, we also see it. I see it firsthand. Satan goes after widows and orphans. God, Satan has marked them for destruction, and God says no. And then what we get to do is step in and say, those who have been marked for destruction know God has a plan and a purpose. There's a future and a hope, and, and, and I get to see it and be a part of it. Well, Philippians chapter 2, and that's just by way of introduction, is some of what we do as a ministry. And I could tell you story after story. Philippians chapter 2 gives us an incredible exhortation, an incredible path to significance. Let me ask you a question. How many of you desire to live a life of significance? Oh, good, okay. Not a trick question. I know pastors are always like, gotcha questions, you know, it's not a gotcha question, legit, like, no, you, you should desire that, that's a good thing, you should want your life to count, you, you, you should want your life to count, because listen, you've been created by God, you've been created in his image, you've been created to reflect his glory, I would say you've been created on purpose for a purpose, now, you might have been an accident to mom and dad. Like, maybe your brother and sister is like 12 years older than you. You got older siblings, and then you came along like 10 years later. You might have been an accident to mom and dad, but you were not an accident to God. You've got a plan for your life. I said this a couple of weeks ago in Montana, and this 16-year-old girl came after her. She said, I was an accident. And I was like, what? <laughs> she's like, yeah, my older sister. She's like 12 years older than me, but God's got a plan for my life. She was so excited and thought it was funny. I was like, yes, Exactly. You should desire to live a life of significance because that's what God has for you. He has prepared good works, the Bible says, in advance for you to do. There's things that God has for you. And a lot of people actually never step into those things. And there's a lot of people that simply go through their life and they've sucked up oxygen and not really done anything. There's a lot of believers, for, 
for that matter, who are doing the same thing. They, 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 they believe in Jesus. They're going to heaven, but they're really not making a difference at all in this life. I remember years ago, I was doing a funeral, and as a pastor, it's one of the things I actually enjoy doing. Because at a, at a memorial service, you're, you get the opportunity to preach the gospel, and people are wrestling with the real questions of life that most of the time they don't ever want to deal with, that this world is doing everything it can to try to get us to be distracted from those questions, and so you get to preach truth in that moment and preach hope. And I remember at, at the gravesite, I had already done my part, and the family was saying their final goodbyes, and I was just walking amongst the headstones and looking down and reading. And in one particular, it just grabbed me. You know the Holy Spirit can take something and just, you know, it's that in that moment the Holy Spirit's doing something. And I looked at one particular headstone, and it quoted the Apostle Paul, who at the end of his life said one of the most profound things. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, and I kept the faith. At the end of his life, that's what he summed up. I fought the good fight, I finished my race, I kept the faith. And I thought about it then, and I've thought about it, you know, more and more as time has gone by. You see, a lot of people, I, I, I know in my own life, they started well, but they don't finish well. Few people, it seemed, actually seem to finish well. And, and at the end of Paul's life, he, was, he finished well. He kept the faith. And I remember thinking, Lord, I want to finish well. I don't want to just start well. I don't want to run okay in the middle. I want to, like, finish well. I remember just thinking with the Lord and the Holy Spirit in that moment, and I saw there, and just looked down, and there was two dates. There was a born-on date and an expiration date, you know, when that person entered the world and when they left this world. And in between was a dash. And I thought, man, my life is the dash. Your life is the dash. It's what's summed up in that, that period of time, in that moment. And, and what do we do? What will we do with that dash? And, and for some, listen, those dates might be really far apart, at least in our own human experience and context, but they don't do a lot in that, and it really means nothing. And for some, they might have dates that seem really close, but they do a lot in that period of time, and that dash is significant. I wonder, what, what is your dash? What, what's going on? Philippians chapter 2 tells us how to make that dash significant because it gives us the exhortation. Paul says something to the believers. He says something to us this morning. Let this mind have this mindset. Let this be your way of thinking. Let this be your way of living in the world. What way of living? It's the very same way of living. It's the very same mindset that Jesus had. He says, think not only of yourselves. Think of yourselves. Fine. That's okay to plan for retirement. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about that. That's a good thing. But are you thinking of others? Are you thinking of your neighbors? Are you thinking about you know, your brothers and sisters across the globe, do you think of others? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What kind of mindset? It's a mindset where the Bible says here, we know this passage very well, who Jesus being in the form of God, he was God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. I mean, he was equal with God, but he wasn't gonna hold on to it. He was willing to humble himself to obey the Father. He emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation, why? For you and me. Why? For others. He lived a life that was, that was geared towards others. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now listen, we've got to catch the end part too, because as in this humility, in this emptying, there's a death, but on the other side of that death is life. It's that resurrected life. 
Because Jesus glorifies, Jesus is glorified. The Father glorifies the Son. And what's incredible, what this passage is saying to us and what Scripture tells us is glorious as Jesus was before, somehow after this moment, after his death and resurrection and his humility, he, he somehow is even higher. The Father's put all things under his feet. There's even a greater glory on the other side of the cross in, in his death and resurrection. And what we are told, what we're commanded, what we're exhorted is let this mind be in you. The very same mindset. Now, this passage of scripture is actually one of the oldest passages that we have in the New Testament. In fact, the commentators tell us that this more than likely was a song that was sung in the early church. They, they know that by the way it was written. It's hard to come across in English, but in Greek it rhymes and it's rhythmic and it's, it's, it's measured out. So it was obvious that this was a section of scripture that as part of the early church, when they didn't necessarily have access to Bibles and things, they would sing. Because worship has a way of evangelizing, you know? When you sing and the Holy Spirit takes worship songs, it has a way of getting that truth from our minds into our hearts. You know, the Bible says we, we, God has a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. When you make that choice, that sacrifice of praise, you start singing, you know, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit comes in and all of a sudden, whatever you're dealing with, something will break, break into your heart. Something will break off, and it's like, wow. Well, the early church was being formed by this. What were they being formed by? What did they know? What was key? What was essential? It was to have the same mindset. As a community of believers, as your brothers and sisters, 2,000 years ago were gathering like this. They were singing this part of Scripture. Let this mind be in you. And they, would, they were reminding themselves of what Jesus did, his humility, but also his exaltation. And they were saying, we need to live the same way. We need to think about others. Here's the big, the paradox. If we want to be filled, we need to be emptied. If we want to have life, there, there has to come a death first. Now, church, this morning, I want to say it's a choice. This morning, I want to exhort you. There's a choice. It says here, let this mind be in you. The word, you look at your dictionary, let, permit to enter. You have a choice. You have to partner. You have to say yes to the Holy Spirit. When, when the, the, the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, is saying, let this mind, you make this choice, it's just that it's a choice that you make. And you don't just make it once or twice in your life, you make it over and over. Any uh, Lord of the Ring nerd fans out there, just me, a couple of you guys, but one guy shot up his hand real fast, all right, he was proud of that, nice, I'm not the only nerd here, great. Um, love the movies, watch it over and over, read the book several times, and, and, and I love it, Tolkien, the writer, is a believer, and so it's, it's very clear, good is good and evil is evil, and if you know the story in the, in the, in the movies or in the book, the, the whole thing is they have to take this ring of power that has, you know, it's tied to the evil Sauron, the, the, the evil in the land, and they have to go and destroy it. And if you know the story, it's tasked to, you know, Frodo, the hobbit, weak, that kind of represents the everyday normal guy who just kind of wants to live his life quiet. And he's tasked with everyone, above everyone else, to go and take the ring. Now there's people who come alongside. And at one point, I remember it was in the movie, and I was just watching it, it hit me. And the little hobbit is friends with the mighty wizard Gandalf, and he says to him, and he holds out the ring, and he says, Gandalf, I wish this did not have to happen in my lifetime. And when he says that, I think that represents all of us. We, we realize there's evil in this world, but when it comes to us, when a, when a choice comes and we have something to do about it, we go, why me, why now? Somebody else, you know, Esther, no, no, not me, not here, not now. And Mordecai says, no, but for such a time as this. Gandalf says to him, when Frodo says, I wish this did not have to happen in my lifetime, 
And so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do at the time that is given us. It's a choice that we make to pick up our cross, to say, I'm going to die to self, and I'm going to choose you, Lord. And sometimes the cross that we, that we bear is a cross that we willingly choose, and sometimes it's a cross that we have to bear because others have made a choice. If you think about it, Jesus bore the cross. It was a cross placed on him by his enemies. And sometimes, Christian, you're going to go through things, and it's a result of your own choices. And sometimes it's a result of choices of others. But in that moment, you have the opportunity to say, Lord, I choose you. I hold on to you. I want to glorify you. Get me through this valley, Lord. You promised to be with me. Never leave me nor forsake you. You feel so far from me in this moment. But, Lord, I believe that you're present. You know, the Bible says over and over again, it says it several times, that God is near to the brokenhearted. I remember thinking about that not too long ago. Lord, why do you say it? So many times. And then the Lord says, I, I felt like the Lord just said to me, you know, I had to say it because in those moments you don't feel that it's true. God says, I'm near to the brokenhearted because in those moments when you're brokenhearted, God feels really far away. God says, no, I'm, I'm closer than I've ever been. In those moments you choose, you say, Lord, I'm holding on, I'm pressing through, I'm saying yes, I'm, I'm gonna obey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna believe. In those, those moments that are scary like Esther, it's gonna co- could cost me my life, yeah, but for such a time as this. And I'm convinced that every single one of us will have an Esther type of moment in our life. may not be quite as big and grandiose. Maybe other people don't know it, but there'll be that moment where we have that choice. Lord, I'm going to choose you. It may cost my life, but I'm going to choose you. I want this mindset. I want the way of Jesus. And what Philippians chapter 2, this life of significance, because truly there was no more significant life than Jesus. The glory on the other side, again, the greater the death, I think the greater the resurrection. The death of self, the death of whatever illusion of control we may think we have, <laughs> to come to the other side of that and realize, no, we, we truly do serve Jehovah Jireh, who will provide. On the other side of that comes a freedom. And some of you know what that's like. You went through a knothole in your life. You know, and it's like, on the other side, you got squeezed through that knothole, and you came on the other side, and it's like, yeah, God is good, and he can be trusted. And, and, and you've had glimpses of that. And now on the other side, there's something that's been changed in you and you have the opportunity to impart that issue. I, I say that because I get to minister with people, some women down in, in, in Mexico who have lost everything. And I hear their stories and I write down their stories and I'm thinking, how, how can you be alive? And yet you're not just alive, but you're laughing and full of joy. And they, they just look at me because they know the, the reality of the goodness of God and the presence of God. And church, I pray that you would know that too. The early church knew this. I want to show you a video in just a a second here, and it's a video, two things, two-part video, really, in two different parts of our ministry. The first part is a testimony from Danny, and Danny is one of our workers in the Middle East, and and Danny shares a story, and he's one of our our, our pastors that we sponsor under our ghost operations, but he gives a reality of what it's like to live as a believer in in a place of extreme persecution and what the church is doing there. And the second part of the video is, is just our way of honoring some of the men who have given their lives in some of the chaplains. And so we're going to show that video now, and I'm going to come up, back up and give you an update on Ukraine and Afghanistan. So if the video is ready, we'll play that now. Oh, and before you play real quick, I do want to give, just give a caveat. Um, there is some sensitive images, and so if you're more prone to that, just in the first part of the video with Danny, um, there are some challenging images. I just want to respect you to give you that opportunity now to make your choice. So.
When the war starts, many problems happen and it's so difficult to continue the ministry. And we know some, someday uh, the problems is come inside our homes, not just in our city or in our area. Uh, at that time, I speak to the leaders and uh, we met together and I said, as in Acts book, the believers when they have the persecuted, most of them they go out of Jerusalem. If you want now to go out of your area or out of Syria to save your families, this is good if God gave you this to do. But uh, we, we must to know maybe one day the problems come to our families and to our life and maybe we will lost our life one day you know when i left the room and after time i turned back to see the decision of the leaders i found 25 people they stand there and they said we will not leave we will continue to serve god here in this area and we will continue the ministry. If we are die, we will go to Jesus. And if we leave here, we will be with Jesus. And you know, but they asked me something to do. They said, if one of our team die, you know we are non-Christian background and no one will take care about our body if we killed or something happened to us. Uh, what we can do if this happened for that? We buy this land and we built a graveyard. This graveyard for if anyone killed from our team, we can put him there. This is the first building of our ministry. I think it's first uh, happened in Raqqa city in Syria. They give the chance for the uh, Christian. They said to him, if you leave your Christianity now, you can be, uh, hold your life, or if not, we will kill you. This, this decision is, you, you know, it's must to, to, to take directly. And most of the Christians said, no, we are ready to die for Jesus. And for that, they, uh, you, you can see many uh, pictures about the Christian, they put them in the cross. And when they put them, Many times they put in the area, all the people can see them. To learn the people, if you will be Christian, this is your, what will happen to you. Uh, and uh, most of the people, I thank God for these uh, heroes in the faith. They die for Jesus and they put them in the cross. You remember when I told you about the stories about the man who uh, was his son? and uh, they bring them and they ask them to leave uh, them faith in Jesus Christ. But the father said no, and the son said no. And they ask the father, if you don't uh, come to Islam now, we will, we will kill your son in front of your, your eyes. And after that, they cut the head of the son and they start to play football in his head, front of his father's eyes. This is something incredible. You cannot understand what's happened, but through all this bad news, you can see the hope is growing between these uh, uh, difficult and uh, bad people. You know, 
Sometimes many people ask me why, why you continue in the ministry in Syria, especially in this time in the war. The important things for, uh, for our life to be in God willing. This is our call from God to, uh, to do the ministry in Syria. When we are inside the, the God willing, that means we are in the safe place. But if we are go out of God willing and go out of Syria, that means we are in the dangerous place. Maybe I, I can go like to Lebanon, to Jordan, to US, to, to anywhere and continue my life there. But that means I am go out of God willing. That means I am in dangerous. The important things in our life, not to be alive, but to be with Jesus willing. But if I am in, inside the dangerous, but in God willing, that means I am in the safe place. This is my belief and I trust in Jesus. He will keep my life and when he wants me to go to him, I am ready to do this. Sun and moon will be replaced with the 
Jesus' face I'll be home and I'll be free saw the last slide. It said 69. We have to update that video over the last few months. I do want to give you a, a encouraging news. Danny, the first part of that video was just with us a few months back in the United States filming an update and giving us some good, good news. And he said, tell the church in America the grave is still empty. And if you saw that video, they were building a graveyard and God has protected them and blessed them and they continue to thrive and flourish. He said, tell the church the grave is still empty to keep praying. I want to share a couple of good stories or good news about what we are doing, what we are experiencing in the world. One of those things in Afghanistan, over a year ago now, we've just passed the over one-year mark of when Kabul fell, and many of us watched you know, the images with absolute horror of the pullout and the devastation and the bodies and all that was taking place. Weeks before it happened, we knew from our own intel, from our believers and workers on the ground of what was happening, and it still happened far faster than any of us really expected or were prepared for. Utter disaster in the pullout, as you know. We knew right away that there, there was attempts to get certain people out of the country. They had, the government had its lists, and those were people who worked with the military, then different people had their lists. But there was a group of people who weren't on anybody's list, at least humanly speaking, but they were on heaven's list, and that was believers. And, and right away, we knew the workers that we sponsored, 23 workers plus their families and extended families that we felt personally responsible for, 250 at the time that we said, we're going to do whatever we can to get them safe to a place of safety. In fact, we had to talk a lot of our workers into that. They were willing to stay, and we said, no, no, we, we, we admire your courage, but we need you to get to a place of safety so that you can get back in, you know, and so that when things settle down. Because we, they, they, they realized, and they were willing to count the cost. We explained to them, you know, not just you, but your wife and kids, and, and we had videos of the Taliban coming in and forcibly removing 13-year-olds and forcing them to marry, just horrible things, and I don't need to tell you all the things that happened, as most of you are known and aware of. Right away, we went into rescue operation, and how can we get as many people out to safety as possible? And God, in his just goodness, began to open up doors and opportunities. And I can say to you, over now, as of, as of today, we're almost at 1,000 people that we've been able to rescue believers. Um, and when for us, there were, there were different organizations that got people out in the initial uh, excitement and zeal of, of the moment. And they just got into neighboring countries. And um, we knew our... our our goal of success wasn't just to get them out, but to get them to a place where they could not only be safe and alive, but also to thrive. And they meant doing it right. And so in, that, in the fury of getting people out, sadly, what was happening over the last few weeks, even a lot of those people who had gotten out didn't get out properly without passports, paperwork. They were being deported back into Afghanistan to the Taliban. It was horrible. We've been praying. Praise God that stopped one of the neighboring countries, put a halt to that. Um, but for us, we're thankful that everybody that we've been able to, that, that we said yes to, and we had different missions organizations reach out to us because of our different friends, you know, um, current and former special ops, different agency type of intelligent guys that have been helping and working with us towards this mission. And being able to put some of our families, um, few families in America, a lot of them in different parts of the world. One family, actually a couple families now in Brazil. In fact, one of our guys just gave a video update who had went and visited him last week. And, it was awesome to see some of these families in Brazil thriving now with jobs, starting Bible studies, uh, to a whole community of Afghan people who had been relocated there, continuing the work of the ministry. Some of our guys that have gotten out have already made inroads back in and out to continue the work in the underground church there. So I share that to keep praying as we still have 
few thousand more that are desirous, and we've said, yes, we're going to continue to work to get them out to a place of safety. Now, again, our desire isn't just to get all the believers out of Afghanistan. It's to get them to a place of safety, but they can come back in and continue their work. Uh, we want to see that, that place. It's like all the countries in the world change for Christ, and, to, and so that temporary place of safety to get back in. Ukraine, I do want to share a little bit about that as well. And when Russia invaded Ukraine, it broke many of our hearts, and we saw in a gas just of what was happening, that Putin would dare to do all that he was doing. And, and for us, it really hurt because as a ministry, as I mentioned, Wes's heart for Russia, we have a lot of pastors and churches that we've planted and work with and still do in Russia and in Ukraine as well. Primarily, though, in Russia, we've got programs. And in fact, one of them we have today, we call our Potatoes for Grandma, where we feed um, elderly, mostly women, but a few men as well, who have a very strict, limited budget, who have not enough food to eat. And so we have programs there to help feed and take care of a lot of these people. And so when, when Russia invaded Ukraine, it was just a disaster. And a lot of the, and I want to say this, the believers in Russia were brokenhearted. You know, the believers in Russia weren't for this. I also want to say something else, too, because in our politically charged system, in the, in the age of all kinds of information and misinformation, and we don't know who to believe, what to believe, it's, it can be frustrating to know who's right, who's wrong in this situation, who's corrupt, who's not corrupt in the governments. I'll just say this, they're all corrupt. <laughs> and it's easy to kind of laugh, but it's true, and even on both sides, you know, and yet we know our job and our responsibility isn't to say Putin's wrong and no, no. You know, the Ukraine's wrong, and this and that's like, no, there's innocent people who are being slaughtered and murdered, and so our job is to come in and, and provide care and relief and to and bring the gospel. And, and so that's exactly our course of action, exactly what we have chosen to do and continue to do. And I can tell you firsthand from video of evidence of my friend who was on the ground and some of the absolute crimes of war that have been committed against the people of Ukraine, just unbelievable acts that that you think couldn't happen in a modern country, in a modern world, in the time that we live in. And so our, our privilege and opportunities to go in and stand. One of the greatest crises, three million people have been dispersed and have left Ukraine all parts of the, all parts of the globe. And so we've come in right away and began to, to minister, bringing food, bringing medicine, standing with the pastors and the churches that we have planted, that we do support, that we do work with. We're working with the Ukrainian chaplain to coordinate our efforts in response is imagine three million people being shuffled and moved all over. Right away, you had churches that were being uprooted and relocated. You had people that were migrants moving in and out. You had a lot of our workers simply uh, transporting people, temporarily housing people, feeding people. We, at one point, we had one of our, our missionary workers in the neighboring country, not even in Ukraine, but a neighboring country, had 100 people staying in his apartment. And we're, we're like, what? How do you... Your apartment's not that big. He's like, I counted twice. I didn't think so. There's 100 people. And so the kind of work that just was happening, and he was feeding and buying socks and clothes and taking the trains. But in the midst of that, there's some good things. One of our team members, Brent and Luke, were there recently, and Brent gave an update a couple of weeks back, and he was there, and he was sharing a couple of different stories I want to share with you this morning. And, and one of those stories was of a, a, an elderly lady who was 81 years of age, and her husband, was, I think, was like 83 and she, he said, this woman was 81, but you would have thought she was like 29, like she was full of spit and fire and, you know, loved the Lord, but was like, had lived through communism, had lived through the Soviet Union, had lived through all that. And her house had been bombed out early in March and they refused to leave. He, Brent says, I think her husband wanted to leave, but she was like, no, we're staying. And so they, when they, when Brent came across them, they'd been living in the backyard, just kind of in a shack, you know, and they had basically survived the winter of Ukraine, you know, without windows and doors because half their house had been blown apart. And they were determined, you know, as believers to stay. 
and to be part of the rebuilding of the church and rebuilding their house. And so we're, we're working with her to rebuild her house. In fact, we're working with a whole lot of people to provide temporary housing over this next winter coming up. Brent told the story too. As I mentioned, we're working with um, the chaplains, but a lot of the workers that we work with are just simply people like some of yourselves who are deacons that are servants in the church, and they became our bus drivers and our van drivers. And they, some of them would, would called and had to go fight in the front line. Some of them didn't, and yet they were driving. They all wanted to do their part. And so we asked, what can we do to help? And as we were providing food and medicine, they asked, can you get us, you know, body armor? And we're like, yeah, we could do that. And, and just come up, some of our, you know, you know, experiences and people that we know and connect with, we're able to provide body armor to our, our drivers. In fact, Brent was there, and he, he met the person who was coordinating our efforts. She was a Ukrainian woman, 25. And just by way of context to show you how things happen, you know, 25, she was a classically trained pianist. That's what she did, a concert pianist. She gave lessons, and now she's in charge of, you know, uh, getting body armor, distributing body armor. This is what she's willing to do and wanting to do. Now, that body armor comes in handy because one of our drivers a couple weeks back was ambushed by the Russians, and they unloaded their automatic weapons in his van. Thankfully, at the time, he was on route to go pick up people. He was just by himself but they unloaded their weapons in him and miraculously he survived. They left and he gets out of the van, waits, waits quite a while, walks 35 kilometers back to the base, gets to the base and the first things out of his mouth are, I need another van, I've gotta go pick people up, I've got stuff to do. <laughs> and they're like, just rest. Like you've been shot at, you've been unloaded, you've just walked 35 kilometers. He's like, no, I have to do this, I have to do this. And finally they, they acquiesced and said fine. And he took a van and he went and continued to do his work. I share that story because these are some of the believers there. And they get to represent you in the body of Christ here because they bring food, they bring medicine, and the people there, they're believers, and most of them are not believers. They're like, why are you doing this? And they say, we're doing this in the name of Jesus. Well, how, who's paying for this? And they'll share the body of Christ in America. There's Christians who are praying. There's Christians who are standing, and they weep because they feel forgotten. They feel like they're unseen, and they realize, no, there's people who care. One story, and I'll, you know, I could keep saying story after story, one of the pastors of a Calvary Chapel whose church, his church had been bombed out, and he was part of a makeshift area in another area, uh, place, another city, was driving a van one day, again, picking up people and relocating them, and as he was picking up this group of people, he gets out of the van, and this guy comes running up to him with tears, and he's begging and screaming, please take my mom, please take my mom, he was so afraid, and he reaches into his pocket, and he opens his hand, and there's a big pile of gold in his hand. He says, here, take this, take this money, just save my mom, just promise me you'll take my mom. And the pastor says, you can put away your gold. People are more valuable than gold. And so he's driving this group, and he was directed to take this group to another church in town they've never been to, and they walk in, and there in the, in the walls of the church, in the mural in Ukrainian, where the words painted, people are more precious than gold. And the guy just starts weeping. He had felt so seen in that moment. Now, the pastor, when he said that, had no idea. I didn't know that was on the wall. didn't know anything. I share those stories because that's God. You know, those moments in our life when you see and you're like, hold on, okay, where's God? Where's God? Oh, God has a way of letting us know he's there. Sometimes in the really big things and sometimes in those subtle ways. And it's like, okay, there's God. That's what God's doing. And so we continue to provide aid and to provide care. We're, we're actively, you know, planning, rebuilding. And, you know, once things are settled, we want to bring teams over there to help rebuild and to evangelize. As we believe there's an amazing opportunity. Just like after the fall of, of the Iron Curtain and the fall of the Soviet Union, so many churches were planted. We're praying and believing that this will be another opportunity for another move of God just like that. I could tell you story after story. 
But what I want to do is, and when I tell these stories, I'm, I'm hoping to stir your hearts. I'm hoping to connect your story with their story. Because the Bible says, when one suffer, we all suffer. And I often think, what would I do? What would I want if, if I was one of those dads in Ukraine or in Afghanistan? What would I expect or want from the body of Christ? And I would hope and pray that I would, you know, I, I know what I'd want. I'd want that there'd be people who would pray and stand with. And, and I think, Lord, how can I do the same? Something my mom taught me years ago, she's an amazing believer and an intercessor and prayer warrior, just like my grandma before her. She said, Sean, the devil always shows you what's important, what the greatest threat is by what he attacks. And we see it often, widows and orphans who he goes after, they're a great threat because they're so near and dear to the heart of God. What's he attacking in your life? You know, you know, where's he after? That, that's the greatest, greatest threat and where you need to pray and protect. So what can you do? What, what's the response? What would the Holy Spirit say to you this morning? What can I do? And sometimes the, the response is, what can I possibly do? There, there just seems to be so much. What can I possibly do? Listen, the good Samaritan didn't save a nation, but he saved one person, and Jesus highlighted that Samaritan. I was going to tell a story earlier, and I forgot, and I want to just kind of put it in here now about one of our works that we are doing, and brand new work that we're pioneering and I share that story because we're going to have the opportunity, or you have the opportunity to stand with us in that. But it's a work that we're doing down in a Latin American country of rescuing kids out of sex trafficking and organ harvesting, stuff that we couldn't even imagine what's going on. We have a brand new children's home that we've just opened up, and we're welcoming the first 30 kids over this next week. A few weeks back, I was able to visit down there the team, and 26 of them are being trained uh, not only to identify these kids and then go in and rescue them, but also being trained for the long, really months and years ahead of walking with these kids and the trauma. And while I was there, I got to provide spiritual care. I was giving Bible studies, and I was sitting in on uh, the next lesson of the day, the next training. It was taught by a local SWAT team leader whose job was working with trafficking and human trafficking. And so he was training our team on what to do because this compound, we've made it absolutely secure and safe because the cartel wants their property back. These are money-making you know, investments to them and their kids. And so these, these women were being trained on how to leave the property every day, where to park in different places, how to make sure they, you know, or in case they're being tailed, what to look for, how to answer the phone, because they'll be, you know, oftentimes they'll get a phone call and be fishing and, you know, what to look for, how to respond, and, and, and what to do if the, if the compound gets breached, and what to do if one of you workers gets taken, you're being raped, you got to make sure you still have, the rest of the staff gets the kids over, to, and they're going through all these scenarios, and I just was sitting there so sober-minded, because I looked around, and these were just normal women. They weren't military, they weren't police, they were just people like you and me that were willing to say yes, willing to do something about it. And for them that meant, you know, working in this home to work with these kids. And I asked Daniel, our director, it's like, do these women realize what they're doing? He's like, oh yeah, they've counted the cost. They realize this is serious. And I said, what, what, what motivates them? And he shared something with me that just, just hit me. Two weeks prior, as part of their training, they were, they were being trained on walking with people with sexual trauma and, and all that they've been through. And I think some of us know the sad statistics that one out of four people are some, at some point in their life are the victim of some kind of molestation or sexual assault or trauma. One out of four. And you don't have to do the math. You just count around a room like this. I know I'm talking to somebody here, a few people here, probably multiple people here. And, and when I was talking to him about that, he said, yeah, what he discovered was 80% of his staff had been the victims themselves in childhood at some point in their teen or younger years of this sort of thing. You've heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people, right? Oftentimes those who have been hurt will, will perpetuate. But church, I want to say to you, healed people heal people. Healed people heal people. People have been touched by the Lord who have been healed. 
in turn, turn around and, and want to heal people. He's like, I've experienced this. You need this. And these women are willing to risk their lives. I've experienced the pain, but I've also experienced the joy and the healing. And I will do whatever I can to protect and to bring healing to their life. So what can you do? You, you simply say yes to whatever the Lord has in front of you. And it might be the neighbor across the street. It might be at the water cooler. It might be at the cubicle. It might be whatever. You can certainly, what we'd say, exhort you to is to pray. I know I'm going a little bit long here. I'll wrap up soon. Anyone want to hear a cool God story? It's actually a true, it's actually a true story. <laughs> I say it's true because actually the person that is here, and he can validate that I'm not just making this up. That's why I say it's actually a true story. I was asking Ed a, uh, about a year ago, and I said, Ed, do you have any like, great stories? And he, and he was telling me a story that happened to him, and he was on the road from Juba, which was the capital of South Sudan, to our compound in Nimli. And it's a notorious road. It's usually a road that we try to avoid, and if we ever do travel on that, we usually go with a lot of armed personnel. We never travel at night on this road. And for some reason, Ed and the senior chaplain James at the time were traveling at night, just the two of them in a truck, back to the compound. Sure enough, in the middle of the night, they get stopped on the side of the road. There's a band of about 20 armed men, and... Ed's nervous. He looks over at James, and he starts to ask James something, and James just looks over at Ed and says, shut up, Ed. Now, James didn't talk that way. He, didn't, he was normally jovial. In that moment, Ed knew how serious a situation this was. And I remember asking Ed, well, what do you think? He's like, oh, I'm going to see Jesus. <laughs> In that moment, he thought, there's no way that we're getting out of this. And, and James gets out of the car, and the men have, you know, they got their Kalashnikovs, and they're, they're, they, are, they are up to something, and there's no way they're getting by this. They're angry, they're agitated. James is trying to talk to them. And Ed thinks, this is it. I guess I'm going to see Jesus. I'm ready to go see my, my, my Lord. And Ed says out of the corner of his eyes, he sees this man come out of the bush. He says, the largest man he'd ever seen. And he walks and he starts talking to this group of men. And, and Ed's in the car. He has no idea what he's saying. And the guy's doing something. At some point, the, the guys in the crowd, the armed men, get kind of a confused look on their face, kind of put their weapons back down. James gets in the truck and Ed says, what's going on? And James like, I don't know, let's get out of here. And they're able to drive and they get back to the compound. The next day, they go back into that area because they want to find out who was this guy. Like, they wanted to thank him. You know, they don't know what he said, what he did, what kind of favor he pulled. What did they, you know, they want to find out who was this man. And so they talk to everybody in the surrounding area. They describe him and what he was wearing and what he looks like. And everybody to a man is like, I don't know who you're talking about. We've never seen anybody like that before or since. Ed's convinced, I'm convinced it was an angel in that moment that absolutely intervened. And that's what the Bible says. And I share that because God will prompt you sometimes to pray. And you may not know what's going on, but when you pray, there's things that happen. And I bet when Ed gets to heaven at some point, you know, some believers are going to come up at some point. There'll be some sort of, yeah, it was weird. I was praying at like two in the morning. Really? That was, I mean, that was that time that I was on the road from Juba to, Sudan, you know, to Nimali. And in that moment, I share, Pray. You know, you can pray with us and pray for the work that we're doing. And the last thing is I would just say to you is that you have the opportunity to partner with what we're doing. You know, I love what, what, what Pastor Tony said is as a church you give, but also you have the privilege as a family, as an individual to pray. Lord, what would you want me to do? Your tithe always goes first and foremost to the church, and we're always really clear about that as a ministry. That's your first privilege and responsibility as a believer to tithe to your local church. But I would say to you above and beyond that, the Bible talks about our offerings, and to present to you the opportunity to, to really, truly invest your money in something that is changing lives. You know, for some of you who are in investments, the Bible talks about investments. You have the opportunity to, with what God has had, to steward it well and, and to invest in, in a ministry that is absolutely changing people's lives. I get to see it firsthand. 
people like Luis, some of the kids that, like Leona that we've rescued and I've got to meet and to see and to see her life changed and touched out of that area. Some of the chaplains. And the reason that we're able to do what we're doing is because people like you are saying, Lord, I may not be able to physically go, but I can go, I can invest. So you can invest some of the programs I brought today, as I mentioned, our, our potatoes for grandma, you know, feeding and taking care of some of our widows and widowers in Ukraine and Russia. Our work that we're brand new work down in, in Latin America, we're rescuing these kids out of sex trafficking and rescuing them from organ harvesting and, and taking care of them and schooling them and housing them. And so funding those kids helps take care of that kid. It also helps us continue the work of rescuing more kids. And so you can stand with us that. And we also have pastors like Danny that you saw in the video, our ghost operatives. And we have several back there as well that you can stand with us on a monthly basis. Just a couple of things and I'll wrap up is that when you stand with us and financially support any of our work, I want to tell you, and this is what's awesome, 100% of your dollars goes to that person, to that, to that outreach. And I can say that because we're blessed as a ministry that we have donors who do cover some of our, that cover our administrative and overhead costs. So that when we travel and different things like that, that, that we need to do for the ministry, we can stand before believers like yourself and say, when you give, know with full confidence and integrity that what you give goes to that child, goes to that program, goes to that ministry. And I always just say this too, is I never want to be the one to ask you for money. That's not my job. My job is simply to exhort you to say, ask the Lord. I have unashamedly say, ask Jesus what he would want you to do and, and then do what he says. Do what he says tomorrow. Lord, what do you have me to do today? Is it across the street? Is it at my work? What do you want me to do? Is it a ministry at this church? Lord, I want my dash to count. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this church. I thank you for the work of Tony and Trish and, and the, the elders here and the workers here. I pray, Lord, it's so awesome just to be part of a church today that loves you, that takes your word serious, that's full of life and I pray blessings on the work here. I pray that the, ga the gates of hell are not, will not, will never prevail against what is happening in this area, that truly Calvary Chapel Gateway, Lord, would be blessed and multiply and grow. In Jesus' name, amen.